Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, in a message he called, Experiencing Jesus. And now, here's David. Thank you, Vicki and Steve, and for those who have already shared their thoughts. Well, thank you for that. Uh, those songs, the last one, open our eyes and that we may see who you are. Isn't that quite appropriate for the passage we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 9, where Saul has his eyes open and sees who Jesus is. Let's just take a moment and come to prayer for a few minutes. We're thankful for this uh, day, Father for the bright sun that's shining and for this time of day, nearly noon, is about this time when that sun was dimmed in its, in its glory by the brighter light still of the glory of Jesus. And as you shone upon Saul that day, we, we uh, think of the effects that has had on us. And thank you so much, Father, for, for just bringing us that same light and that same glory to our, our presence this morning. Thank you that we could gather around the one who gave his life for us. And we thank you, Jesus, for doing that. Pray that we would continue to hear and experience your love as we've been singing and that we may share it with those who need to hear and see the love and experience Jesus in their own lives. We pray. So I, I hope that you... Uh, we're able to listen to Peggy's uh, e- email link that she sent you. Uh, that that sort of gives you the introduction for the message. If you're not if you're not uh, familiar with that and you haven't had a chance, then you can go listen to it. Because uh, um, I, I don't have time to read all 31 verses, so I think it's such a well-known story. I'm hoping that many of you will just follow along anyway. But can you think of it? Can you think of a time when you've changed your mind? <clears throat> Maybe uh, a couple of possibility examples for you to think about. Maybe you've changed the political party that you support. And uh, what considerations went into that change or that decision if you made that such a, such a decision? <clears throat> Excuse me. Maybe you made the decision after some careful consideration of the policies of the party. Or maybe it was the person that you personally met the candidate and uh, and you were impressed by their character and their quality of uh, life. Or maybe you have experienced disillusionment with your previous choice and felt let down by their broken promises. So there's a number of factors that could influence your choice that you make or the mind that you make up. Take another example. This may be a little bit strange, but uh, I think we've all heard about the idea of climate change. (laughs) If you haven't heard about it, then you probably should check your pulse right now. So that's the idea that the Earth may be warming up, uh, that the planet is warming up. And if if you're old like me, you probably didn't think much about the climate changing when you were young. I don't think I even considered the possibility until, what, 30, 30, maybe somewhere around 30 years ago, maybe a little longer. Prior to that, I believed that if it were changing, wouldn't change anything in my lifetime. In other words, I didn't have to think about it or worry about it. 
And some may still feel that way. They don't believe the climate is changing at all. But for myself, I have come to now believe that the climate is changing and changing relatively rapidly. So why did I change my mind? So there were a number of factors that might have influenced my belief. One would be the scientific data that's being accumulated over time. And apparently, the Earth's average temperature has gone up one degree Celsius in the last hundred years or so. Well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of difference when I'm scraping my windshield in January, but anyway. I've also read reports from many experts that are telling us that the climate is changing, and there are a few that deny it. Well, weighing both sides, I find myself trusting the experts whose opinions seem to be in the majority and those who don't have conflicting interests when presenting their views. So still another consideration is that it seems reasonable to me. If greenhouse gases concentrations are rising, I would expect that would have some effect and start to warm the planet. In other words, the explanation makes sense to me. But perhaps the most persuasive reason to change my mind is my own experience. I've noticed in my years in the north that the winters have changed somewhat. When we first came to this area, like in 1987, it seemed to me that we often had weeks of minus 30 degree days. Now, maybe that was just coming from southern Ontario. I just felt that was the case. But, you know, the water pipe to our house even froze one of those years. And I thought, well, this is a really cold place. But lately, I think there are fewer of those really cold spells. It seems less likely that we get weeks on end where it never gets above minus 30. And there are more days above freezing than there used to be. It seems like that's always messing up the ski trails. You know, like it's, it's, not, it's not really fair to have a plus three degree day in February. You know, it's just when the skiing's best. Anyway, so, and I've heard more reports of extreme weather events than ever before with extreme heat waves, droughts, tornadoes and wildfires seem to be on the rise. So my main reason for changing my personal belief is my personal experience, which seems to confirm all of the other sources of information. So that was a pretty long introduction to thinking about, well, let's talk about why we change our mind on certain things. And so today we're studying Acts chapter 9. In this chapter, there are a number of characters that change their minds, although, although there are some that don't. I would like to examine these accounts in light of the decisions. What factors account for these changes or lack of change? And I hope we might find this exercise somewhat useful for us and for our own lives. For one thing, I think it's important how to take some time to examine our own beliefs why do we hold them? How did we arrive at them? Do we re need to reevaluate them? It is also helpful, I think, to understand what we are asking of others when presenting our beliefs to them. We would like them to change their mind and adopt our position. In essence, we are asking them to examine their reasons for holding their beliefs, and we hope that they will find our reasons more compelling. Are our reasons good enough to accomplish that goal? Are they sound? Are we even able to articulate our reasons? I hope that by looking at some of these characters, we might have a better understanding of why we believe what we do and what we need to do in terms of presenting our thoughts to others. 
So the first character we meet, obviously, the main star of this chapter is the uh, person of Saul of Tarsus. Now, I'll probably call him Paul more than once in this talk. So um, he later takes on that Greek name, but he's Saul at this time. We've already been introduced to this young man in previous chapters. In this chapter, he has the most dramatic change of mind imaginable. He takes the completely complete 180 degree turn in his life. This change of mind has had a tremendous effect, not just for Saul, but for the church as a whole and indeed the history of the world, I would say. And I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that we are meeting here today as a result of the events recorded in this chapter. The conversion of Saul is a key point in the history of the church. It's interesting that Luke records the details of this event, not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Acts. We are given the account here in chapter 9, and Saul gives it as his testimony before an angry crowd that wants to kill him in Acts 22, and again as his testimony in a legal hearing before King Herod Agrippa and Governor Felix in Acts and Governor Festus, sorry, in Acts 26. In each account, we learn a few more details of the event. And it is some interest that these accounts differ in some fairly significant ways. And I'm not going to make any specific comments on those differences, but you can make that a project for yourselves if you're interested. Suffice it to say that this event was a big deal and it would be hard to overemphasize its importance. The account begins with Saul on the hunt for those who are followers of Jesus, also known as followers of the way. His aim is to capture them, return them to Jerusalem, and force them to recant or face execution. So why did he have such a violent approach to this way? I think that he severely, sincerely believed that this was what God wanted him to do. Saul, as we have already heard, was a very highly educated Pharisee and a devout follower of God. He was keen that the faith that he held should be kept pure and that it be guarded against any movement that would threaten it. He was a devout believer and would have recited the great Shema of Israel every morning and evening as prescribed by his religion. That's found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And when he said the Lord, he was using the word Adonai because he wouldn't want to pronounce the word Yahweh, which was something the Jews didn't seek. But it was really, Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And along comes this movement that claims there's another who is Lord. They are saying that Jesus is equal with Yahweh. He even heard Stephen proclaiming this, and so he fully supported his execution. This blasphemy was a threat to the national aspirations of Israel. Saul knew that God could remove them again from the land and continue to allow foreign domination of Israel if they pursued other gods. Hence, he was highly motivated to purge this cult from Judaism. So he was on the road to Damascus under the authority of the chief priests to find adherence to this cult and extradite them back to Judea for probable torture and possible execution. 
Saul probably looked to the Old Testament examples of violent attacks on lawbreakers for his moral justification of his actions. And this would include the killing spree by the Levites of those who were worshipping the golden calf in Exodus 32, or the killing of those who intermarried with other nations in Numbers 25. Saul was an exceptionally zealous Jew, highly educated and committed to following the Lord. He knew his Bible from cover to cover, or actually from first scroll to last scroll, and tried to obey it with all of his ability. And he was convinced that Jesus claimed to be God, made Jesus a blasphemer, asked were those that followed him and also made that claim. So to say what happened on that road to Damascus came as quite a shock to Saul is a huge understatement. This event, sh- sh- uh, shouldn't have put so many S words in. This event shook Saul to the core of his being and changed him forever. So as he was nearing Damascus about noon, an extremely intense light, much brighter than the sun, struck him and his companions that were with him. They all fell to the ground. Not sure whether that was an inability to stand on their feet because the light was so bright and they were trying to shield themselves for it or whether it was just a response to the awesome presence of, of the one who was revealed. It reminds me of when Jesus was going to be arrested in the garden and he, the, the, the people that came to arrest him said, uh, you know, we're here to arrest you and are you Jesus? And he says, I am. And they all fell back and fell down. <laughs> like the power of Jesus uh, and the uh, authority of him. So whether that was it or not, but here they all were on the ground. They couldn't remain standing. Paul, Saul then heard a voice speaking of all languages, Aramaic. Aramaic, why Aramaic? Well, that would be the language that Jesus commonly spoke in his time on earth. The voice asked Saul a question. Why are you persecuting me? It's interesting that Saul answers with another question. <laughs> I don't think he was trying to be evasive, like, why do, you answer, why do you answer a question with a question? But I don't think he had rather anything else he could think of at the time. He was totally floored. He had no idea what else to say. Well, natural question, an extremely important question is, who are you, Lord? The answer would rock Saul to the core of his being. I am Jesus. No, you can't be Jesus. All my education and upbringing says that Jesus was a fake and that he's dead. You can't be Jesus because you look like God. You are shining with the glory of God. What does this mean? I wonder if Saul even heard the next words. He would have been so shocked, you know, like when the doctor gives you bad news that's about all you hear. And if he tells you all sorts of other things or what's going to happen in your treatment, you don't even remember what he's going to say after that. So I don't know what Saul remembered until he thought about this much later. He was, you're Jesus? Jesus tells him to get up and go to the city and await further instructions. Probably a good plan because he wasn't ready to hear them at that time. And Saul would, would have um, just, I don't know, Thought of, couldn't have, I don't know what he could have thought about it at that time. But something else was also evident when he got up from the ground. He was blind. Couldn't see. The others who saw the light, they weren't blinded. So what did this mean? 
What was, what was this a sign of? Anyway, Saul was devastated. For three days he was in despair. Didn't eat anything, didn't drink anything. He was praying, but his life was undergoing a complete overhaul. A total reevaluation of his most ardently held beliefs. Talk about deconstruction. This was the ultimate deconstruction experience. If Jesus was indeed God, then he had to reinterpret his Bible. It must have been like downloading the whole new operating system and then pressing restart, you know, and waiting for it to work. And you just have to wait and wait, wait it out. It took some time. How could I have been so blind? I thought I could see, but it turns out I am blind. I wonder if Saul's later writing to the Roman church was influenced by those three days of introspection. This is what he wrote as the Apostle Paul to the book of Romans. In the book of Romans to the Roman believers, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Like Jesus in the grave for three days, Saul experienced the death of his old self for those three days of blindness. But Jesus doesn't leave Saul in that state. In essence, he is resurrected after the death of his old self. He is brought into new life by the visit of Ananias. Verse 17 of chapter 9 says, So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. As Ananias spoke, all of Saul's objections melted away. He turned from darkness to light and his sight was restored. He had changed his mind about who Jesus was. He had repented. Repent means to change your mind. That's what the actual word means. And that's what Paul had done. He had changed his mind. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized as a testimony to that change he had received new life. So what, were the, what was the reason that Saul changed his mind? Well, it seems pretty obvious, but just thinking about that, was this a decision based on his education and investigation of the scriptures? No. He had done that and reached the pinnacle of knowledge, but had come to the wrong conclusions. Did he use his great intellect to reason out Jesus' identity? No, not until he actually met Jesus. Then his intellect went into full gear. Was it the persuasive speech of other believers? No, he'd listened to Stephen's spirited defense and presentation, but remained unmoved and gave his approval for Stephen's execution. Rather, I would suggest that it was his experience of meeting Jesus that brought about this change of mind. 
And I think experience has often been downplayed as the basis for our belief, but I wonder if that's being a little short-sighted or narrow-minded. I would suggest that most of our beliefs that we live our daily lives on are based on our experience. This pulpit is, I believe, solid and heavy. Yeah, I know it's solid, and I know it's heavy because I've tried to lift it. I know this because I've experienced it. Take, a, take your belief about ice, for example. You see this ice-covered lake. You, know, you can study ice, and you can know a lot about its formation and its strength, but will that layer of ice hold you up if you step on it? You may believe it will, but you become much more sure of your beliefs if you actually step on it and don't fall through. Your belief in the strength of ice goes from the abstract to the concrete, based on your experience. If our beliefs are only abstract, then how much can we depend on them? In another sense, how can we convince others to abandon their beliefs and adopt ours if we don't have that really assurance of our belief? Take, for example, the the belief that some hold of uh, reincarnation. The belief that life continues after death in the form of another living organism. This is an example of an abstract belief, which apparently no one can validate by experience, as the consciousness of the previous existence is lost at death and on reincarnation. So this belief remains abstract. There's no experience possible to verify it. Some believe it. But others may say, well, that just sounds made up to me. And there really wouldn't be any way of convincing one or the other. You could hold that belief, but you have no experience to verify it. Saul's belief is on a much different foundation. He actually met Jesus. He was now convinced of the claims of Jesus, and he begins to promote those claims just days after his conversion. Such is the power of experiencing Jesus. Now, I should clarify, I'm not saying that experience alone is all one needs, especially not just personal experience, which is rather subjective, but rather experience combined with the scriptures and with the teachings of the community of mature Christians is important for strengthening our beliefs or for the necessary revaluation of our thinking. So it's not just experience, it's experience adding to other things. John Wesley, the leader of the Methodist movement in the 18th century, taught there are four sources for the basis of our thinking. And they're sometimes referred to as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Wesley taught that scripture was the primary source for our understanding, but that tradition, experience, and reason also had important parts to play. And by tradition, he meant the orthodox teachings of the church through the ages, but also the beliefs and values taught by and practiced by the local or current community of believers of the church. He felt our beliefs must be able to be defended rationally. Faith was not to be divorced from reason. Along with, these experience, along with these, experience is also an important part um, uh, as any belief should come to life or be confirmed through our experience. 
If our experiences do not match our beliefs, we have a problem. Either our experience is invalid or our beliefs need to be revised. Let's take a little example. For We read in, in John's Gospel, verse, chapter 14, verse 13, that Jesus says that he will do anything we ask in his name. Does your experience bear that out? Did you get the, did you win the lottery? Did you get the car? Were, were you, you know, no, uh, you know, some things we've asked and it never seems to come. So what's our experience telling us? I think it, it's our experience is telling us we need to go back to the scriptures and understand them better. And uh, we haven't totally understood what Jesus was talking about there. Saul was confronted with this problem. He believed that God was one, but now had experienced Jesus as God. He had to reinterpret scripture in light of that experience. His experience was confirmed by the appearance of Ananias, who brought with him the teachings of the way. So all four four sources of understanding were at work. Scripture, teaching, reason, and experience They all were important for Saul to arrive at his new and now firmly held belief. Well, we spent quite a bit of time on Saul since his experience is the main feature of this passage. But there are a few other characters we should just take a moment to look at. Ananias was a godly man, devoted to the scriptures and well regarded by the Jews. He was also a follower of the way, one of those who Saul had come to arrest. He believed that Saul was a violent enemy and someone to be feared and avoided. Pretty reasonable belief. But in verse 11 of the chapter, we read, The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, but Lord, he's not like Philip we read in chapter 8, he just went up and go, but he's going to ask the Lord some questions here. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about this, the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on his name. And and that would include me, Lord. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument. He was challenged, Ananias was challenged, to reassess his belief and change his mind about Saul. Again, this change of mind came as a result of an encounter with Jesus. This time, we're told, in a vision. Now, a vision would seems to be more of an inner experience than Saul's encounter. In a vision, someone standing right next to a person having a vision might not be aware of it, whereas Saul's companions were aware of the light and the voice. And visions of Jesus have been reported throughout the centuries, from the time of Ananias onwards. And uh, they are personal and subjective and open to some skepticism, I must say, But there are many reports of people seeing Jesus in visions. And some of these visions have had a profound and positive effect on individuals. Many attribute their belief in Jesus as a result 
of, uh, to a result of meeting him in a vision. And you hear of these stories, especially coming out of lands where, where the ability to express your faith is very extremely restricted. And Jesus seems to have made himself um, present in the lives of people. And there's a number of stories you can find on the Internet of that occurring. Well, fortunately for Saul and all of us, Ananias changed his mind and sought out Saul and provided the human connection that was needed to confirm Saul's new way of thinking about Jesus and bring him needed instruction as to how he should proceed. I'd like to jump now to a group of people we are told did not believe that Saul had become a disciple of Jesus. I'm specifically referring to the apostles in Jerusalem. How did they come to change their belief about Saul? Unlike Ananias, they didn't receive any direct communication from Jesus. You might expect the apostles would hear a voice or see a vision. After all, they had the most experience of seeing Jesus before and after his death. Instead, their mind-changing process took the form of human testimony. Verse 26, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were afraid of him. Seems to make some sense. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord. Somehow Barnabas connected with Saul. Not sure how, uh, how that happened, but, but whether Barnabas was in Damascus or whether he just, you know, believed that Saul could change. He alone was the one who went up as a son of encouragement and said, I'm going to help this man. Anyway, he introduced Saul to the apostles as as a brother in Christ. And the apostles were changed in their mind by Barnabas' testimony and Barnabas' word of, of commendation for Saul. So Saul was staying with them and ministering alongside them. They changed their minds as a result of information giving them, given to them from a trusted source. So the last characters that I would like to examine are those that didn't change their minds. They show up in two places in our story, and they are some of the Jews in Damascus and some Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. Verse 22, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. See, here's Paul's great intellect being used in in arguing the proof of Jesus' Messiahship. But after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. So that's the story where they were waiting at the gate for Saul to come out and they were going to jump him. He got word of that and some of the disciples let him down from the wall of the city in a basket. It's kind of an interesting way of escape, but that's the story, and he got, he got out of there. In verse 29, we read, He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, this would be in Jerusalem, but they tried to murder him. So he wasn't becoming a very popular person around the, 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 the towns. Saul was proving to be very vocal in presenting the reasons for his change of mind. He was using his extensive knowledge and revised understanding of Scripture in an attempt to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. 
These Jewish groups refused to change. Saul was unable to convince them to change their minds, even with his powerful use of biblical arguments. Should this have surprised Saul? After all, he'd heard the same arguments from other believers and it had not changed his mind before his experience with Jesus. So to conclude, I want to examine our own beliefs a bit. How did we arrive at them? How strongly are they held? Do any of our beliefs need to change? What is the process for changing or reinforcing them? In our experience, it seems that Jesus does not often show up in a shining light or an audible voice. He may speak in visions, but even that seems to be unusual or at least infrequent and is exceptional rather than the norm. If experience is part of our belief process, how can we experience Jesus? My suggestion is that we look around the room that we're sitting in right now. Many here have had years of following Jesus, studying his life, getting to know him through the recorded stories and teachings. They have had many life experiences where they have experienced something of his presence. Also, his spirit dwells within them and they can testify to having a connection with him. So what I'm saying is that one important way that we can experience Jesus is through people showing us Jesus. People sharing with people. That should bring us a better understanding of what we believe. What about our desire for others to become followers of Jesus? How will they ever change their minds? I'm sure Saul found it frustrating that he could not debate people into the kingdom. All logic and convincing arguments and exposition of scriptures failed to change some of his listeners. Those same arguments had failed to convince him. Some people will likely never come to Jesus unless he comes to them. Well, how's that going to happen? Doesn't seem to make it a habit of shining brightly on the, on the road when they're traveling. But he gave us an example of what that is, what we are to do. And again, it will have to be people to people. These people will need to experience Christ through their experience of his people. They will have to see Jesus in the lives of others. That's quite a sobering responsibility for all of us to bring the experience of Christ to the lives of those who need it. Jesus said to his disciples and followers in Matthew 5.14 that they were the light of the world. That is a remarkable statement really for Jesus to make because later in John's Gospel, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. How can we both be lights of the world? Well, our light shines because of his light through us. So we are to take his light and shine it to the world. And Jesus said, uh, this light is to shine on others through his followers. Matthew goes on to report that Jesus said his followers are to let their light shine before others so that they may see their good works and glorify God. As I was preparing this talk, I was thinking of uh, the story that I heard from the uh, the film Sabina, uh, 
It's the story of Sabina Wormbrandt, who, uh, with, along with Richard, her husband, uh, founded Voice of the Martyrs. And some of you may be familiar with the story if you've read the Wormbrandt story or seen the movie. And I highly re- recommend you do see it. So Sabrina, Sabina was a Jewish Christian living in Romania at the start of World War II. Her family was taken captive and killed by the Nazis. Later in the war, Richard, Sabina's husband, met a brute of a man named Barilla, who, was, who boasted frequently about killing Jews. As Richard listened to him, he realized that this man was likely the very man that had killed his wife's family. As they talked, Barilla told Richard that he loved music, and it was especially some Ukrainian folk songs, that Richard knew how to play on the piano. Sensing an opportunity, Richard invited Barilla into his apartment with Sabrina asleeping, sleeping next to, in, the, in the bedroom. While she slept, Richard played some of Brilla's favorite songs on the piano. The old folk songs visibly moved the big man. At that moment, Richard said to him that he had something very important to say. He then told him that if he looked in the next room, he would find his wife sleeping. He went on to say that it was her fa- family who he had killed. Brilla jumped up and appeared ready to kill Richard. But Richard held up his hand and said, no, let's try an experiment. I I shall wake my wife and tell her who you are and what you have done. I can tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper, the best things she has in the house. Now, if Sabrina, who is a sinner like us, can forgive and look Uh, and love like this. Imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive and love you. Only turn to him and everything you have done will be forgiven. Barilla immediately crumbled. He recognized his guilt and cried, admitting that he was a murderer. He sobbed, Oh God, what shall I do? Richard introduced him to Jesus and the man felt on his knees and asked for forgiveness. After Richard said, that he still had promised that his wife, if woken, would come out and embrace him and feed him a meal. So Richard went in and gently woke his exhausted wife and told her that the man who killed her parents and siblings was in the next room, but that he had repented and was now a brother in Christ. Sabina got up, went to Barilla, embraced him and kissed him, and then brought him a meal. Barilla became one of their helpers in their efforts to save Nazi soldiers from vengeful Russian soldiers at the end of the war. Sabrina, Sabina and Richard were the Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. People that brought Jesus to Barilla the murderer. He met Jesus in them and was brought into new life in Christ. In a sense, their story is a lot like Ananias's. He went to a murderer who he thought might kill him, but brought him a new life instead. And this is a powerful illustration, I think, of, of people bringing Jesus to other people. 
And it's an illustration of the need for people to experience Jesus through the lives of his followers. As we've heard this morning, Father, we are challenged by this idea that we are to be the light of the world. And that we, through our experience of Jesus, must share that experience with those who are in need, those who are blind, those who are needy, those who are without Jesus. And so we pray, Father, for the strength and ability and the wisdom and the courage to fulfill that role as lights in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.